Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder that has done it multiple times. You know, we're going to be talking about uh, some of those reflections. You know, of the scaling, financing, and exiting. You know that he has been able to experience, and then also, you know, other other things like what he's doing with mentoring, with the investing in some of the other companies, and and also with his latest uh, company. So, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Joydeep Sensarma. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Orlando, for having me on the show. So originally born there in India. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? I grew up mostly in Delhi, you know, which is the capital of India. Usual childhood, you know, I um, was always good at school. You know, I was I was one of the uh, class toppers always, always good in studies. I was, I was the kind of person, you know, would uh, sort of study a lot and sort of, you know, <laughs> so on. So I went on to uh, doing engineering in IIT Delhi, uh, which was, you know, very much sought after in India. Yeah, so, you know, usual typical kid, good in studies and sort of all things academic. Yeah. And you got into computer science quite early. Why, why computer science? How do you develop the love for it? Um, yeah, that's actually a small interesting story. I did not, you know, like uh, when we were young, there were no computers. At least I did not have exposure to computers. So I didn't really exactly know what computer science meant. Uh, but, you know, I had a very good rank in IIT JE, which is, you know, uh, as you, as many people know, a very famous entrance exam in India, uh, sort of to get into the IITs. And when I went for counseling, and they told me that, hey, all the good students, they're supposed to take computer science. 
So I said, okay, fine, you know, I'll take computer science. <laughs> uh, physics my, was my original love. You know, I used to really like physics as a subject, but I ended up taking computer science. It took me a couple of years to actually develop the love for it. Um, I couldn't really get the hang of it in the beginning, but then when I started doing some graphics and sort of, you know, like had some nice equipment and then I started saying, it's really cool, you know, I want to like spend more time doing this. So I had definitely uh, an acquired love, not a not something that I had from day one. So how do you land in the U.S.? How did that happen? Yeah, so after graduating from IT Delhi, I um, you know applied to a number of colleges for scholarship. Um, uh, wanted to continue studying. Um, I ended up at University of Pittsburgh in the U.S. Uh, on a master's uh, scholarship, uh, also in computer science. Um, yeah, that was my journey to the U.S. And then you know I ended up uh, you know getting a job after that in Oracle. I didn't go on to finish my PhD program, which I had enrolled for. It kind of sounded a little overwhelming, but um, it was a great experience because I was able to do some research. So I was actually able to publish a couple of papers and it was really a nice experience doing uh, research in a, you know, American university. Um, but I also figured that I was really more of an applied sort of a person. I wanted to you know, build things. So I ended up taking up a job at Oracle. I mean, you did uh, a bunch of companies. In fact, you've, you've worked for some of the most uh, iconic uh, companies, no? Uh, also Yahoo and Facebook. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But in between, you know, you did a startup and uh, it didn't go as planned. And I'm sure that you learned quite a bit. It ran out of money. So so tell us what was the journey there and what were the lessons learned? Because typically you learn more from failures than from successes. Yeah. So I'm sure that uh, there was a, le- a, a ton of lessons there to be learned. Yeah, um, yeah. That uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so actually, uh, in about I think it was the year two thousand, or I'm forgetting the exact exact years. I was working in network appliance, which, by the way, was a fantastic company, and I think I have a lot of um, influence and lessons from that company in my personal life that I think I have carried along with me. Um, I just got bored of working in a larger company, and I wanted to take the plunge. And one of my um, architects at NetApp was starting a small company. It was called Datsy. I don't think anybody um, remembers the name or knows the name. Um, it was funded by, you know, had a small amount of funding from a venture capitalist. And uh, I just jumped in. You know, I had a couple of offers and I just jumped in. I, I wanted to uh, just experience the startup bug. And I, this was a person I knew and trusted. I said, you know, let me just sort of, you know, go along for the ride. Um, what I took away from it, um, it was, it was an amazing experience, you know, because as an engineer in a large company, you don't have much exposure. You just sort of get projects and you work on them, you build software, but you don't really have exposure to investors, to customers, to all kinds of things. You know, you're just sort of working in your cubicle. Um, we still had cubicles back in those days. Um, so, you know, coming to a startup meant that, you know, I was presenting to investors. Um, I was building things from scratch. Um, I had a small team. Um, and I think more than anything else, what I remember is how it stretched me. You know, I was able to do so much in such a short time frame that I never imagined was possible. You know, because I had never stretched myself in professional life uh, as much. And we were under a lot of pressure to build something, to deliver something, to, you know, to have a working product. So I think that was, um, I, I realized that, you know, this is something I continue to um, tell to, you know, people I interact with that. Human beings are really a little bit like a rubber band, you know, like an elastic band. And, you know, unless you stretch, you know, you don't really know, you know, how much you're capable of. Of course, you don't want to stretch so much that, you know, you snap and break. Uh, but you really need to stretch yourself a little bit. So I think for me, like the biggest experience was uh, to uh, that you can you you can do a lot more than 
you think you can and you realize that when you go into a startup. So that was the positive side. Um, on the negative side, we were really clueless. You know, honestly, the the idea was not very well thought through. There were a lot of issues on the business front. Technology is, of course, you know, you can build a new technology, but it wasn't really a well thought through idea uh, or product or customers. There were also issues in terms of people and sort of, uh, you know, sort of like uh, just sort of founder disputes and things like that. Um, I also actually, one, once that company started running out of money, I started building something on my own um, that I thought was more powerful. I had a, another friend um, that I probably shouldn't name here who was also working with me on that project. And we kind of built something which, um, uh, there was another company uh, called Data Domain, which was a multi-billion dollar exit. You know, they were building the same thing. We built a prototype. I, I took that to CTOs in the Bay Area, I tried to sort of get them to buy in. And uh, again, you know, I, 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 and I gave up. You know, I just sort of went back to my job because I didn't have a visa, I didn't have money. I, I was kind of feeling re really scared of, you know, like just sort of like um, not being able to continue living in the US, honestly. Um, so I had to give it up, but there was another huge learning lesson there that that idea was really great. It was a fantastic idea. But, you know, I couldn't build on it because I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't have enough conviction. I didn't follow through. Um, so while I had, you know, stretched myself on the technology and the engineering side, I didn't really know how to do a business. And I didn't have anybody with me, you know, who could help me in that. Um, and I was totally clueless. I had, I had no idea, you know, and and. The other thing I realized is that technology is not worth anything at all. Um, I mean, again, sort of, let me not overstate that. It's just that technology by itself is not valuable. It's it's customers that are valuable. It's business and customers that are valuable. And I realized that, you know, there's just having a cool piece of technology and shopping it around wasn't going to cut it. And I thought it would cut it, but, you know, it was obviously very, very naive. Um, so yeah. you know, I should have just persisted, gotten a few customers, raised a little bit of money, and it could have been a really nice um, uh, startup. But you know, uh, so that was, that was you know a lot of interesting lessons for me. Um, I, I would say more than anything else, the ability to stretch yourself and and keeping that as part of me for the rest of my life, I think was the most valuable one. So then you ended up uh, going back to corporate, and the, it sounds like the most immediate step to going at it again, because as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, it was working at Facebook, where you actually, you know, ended up meeting, you know, uh, your co-founder for your next day venture. So what were, what were the sequence of events there for you to, <clears throat> to get, get comfortable with the idea of starting a business? Uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, I went to Facebook after, you know, NetApp and then Yahoo, and then I ended up at Facebook. So we had a very great uh, four years at Facebook. I was uh, one of the co-founders co of the project called Hive, which was the Apache Hive project at Facebook. So we also bootstrapped the whole uh, data infrastructure at Facebook and built the software and managed the team. And, you know, it was, it was a fast growing company. You know, when we joined Facebook, it was about like 30 million users. Right, and I remember the 50 million user party that happened very soon after I joined. And so you can imagine, you know, those early days. You know, that was about I was about 250 odd strength. You know, when I joined, and now of course, you know, it is like I don't know how many thousands of people it has. Um, so a few things happened, you know, as a result of the Facebook gig. Um, one was, of course, you know, to some level, some amount of financial independence because the company did really well. That means, you know, we we, we made a little bit of money in stock options and so on. So we, you know, we had some job security, you know, we could sort of afford to go without a job for a few years. Um, the second thing was, uh, uh, you know, exposure to the big data industry and sort of having some credentials there. So as an author of a very, 
uh, important and popular open source project. You get a lot of visibility, um, you know, you get, not just in the community and users, but also in the venture capital community. You know, everybody wants to talk to you and invest in you and so on. So we had like good, um, you know, brand recognition, if you if you will, uh, coming out of Facebook. So I think those were two things that really helped both sort of the financial independence as well as some level of credibility and expertise in a very hot sector of the technology landscape, which was the big data landscape, as everybody from that era sort of might remember. Um, and then that really enabled us to, uh, you know, start the next gig, which was Cubo. So tell us about, um, you know, going at it with Cubo, because I'm sure it was not an easy an easy choice, you know, especially given your your past experience with starting companies. I'm sure you were a little bit more careful about going about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, another thing I forgot to mention, you know, one of the other things I realized I had, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, once an entrepreneurial bug, you know, you always keep trying to do this. So I had also tried other sort of ventures on the side, moonlighting, you know, just sort of explored other concepts. And one thing I'd realized was that in addition to um, everything that we've already talked about, um, that it's good to do a venture in a space that you really love. Because, you know, you, you can't, a venture is not like a something that you do for a couple of days or a month or even six months, right? It's something that you do for a long time. So, you know, it's it's good to work in something that you have a passion for so that, you know, even if you, if things are going well or they're not going well, you can stick it out. Because otherwise, you know, if, if things are not going well and you're also not passionate about the field, it's very easy to quit it. So that is, that is another lesson that I had picked up on the way somewhere along this journey. Um, so when we started Cubol, a lot of these things came together for me. Um, a, you know, I was really passionate about building sort of technologies in the big data space. Like that really excited me, like large scale, scalable computing. That's something that I had worked on for most of my life. And I could see myself working on that for many more years. Uh, so I had passion. I've always built it, uh, believed in building companies on technology trends. So even my previous startup, you know, some of the experiences I talked to you about, uh, that was that era was this migration from disk, sorry, from tape to disk, you know, and so there was a lot of companies that were founded on that migration. And so with Cubol, the, the key technology trend that I believed in um, and why I started the company was the migration from um, sort of on-premise to cloud. Because as a as a early user of the cloud, I just felt like this was the way to go. And not many people believed us at that time. You know, a lot of venture capitalists at that time talked to us and said, oh, the cloud is like a toy. It's for developers. It's really not something that enterprises are going to use. So that's, of course, all very funny, you know, in, uh, in, in 2023, you know, it's all it sounds very, very funny. But, you know, that's what every venture, most of the venture capitalists told us. And, and they didn't want to compete with AWS. That was uh, yet another thing. Right? Um, but uh, we really believed that, you know, this was the trend and that, you know, we could ride this trend, build something that we were passionate about and keep on building it for a long time. I also felt like with the cloud, you know, you could do some proprietary value add. So I think, you know, one thing to remember in that in 2011, business models were not very clear with respect to cloud and open source. So I think that was something that we didn't quite get right, but we made a choice. You know, we, we, we decided that we were going to go and build a service in the cloud so that we could build a somewhat proprietary service while leveraging open source. Um, now, it turned out that open source itself was a very, very powerful business model. And I think we kind of didn't get that quite right. Uh, but, you know, you you sort of, we did get some bets right and we didn't get some other bets right. Uh, of course, the trend on uh, betting on big data was obviously a great thing as well. So, you know, so I, I thought about a lot of these things. And 
at least my personal hope, you know, when I started the journey was, hey, you know, if we could build the best data warehouse in the cloud or best sort of, you know, big data warehouse in the cloud, maybe we could become like Oracle, you know, which was my first company, you know, which was like Oracle. I always uh, remembered that Oracle was um, born, partly it was a new technology, but there was a very important technology trend they rode upon, which was the migration to microcomputers. So as businesses moved from mainframes to microcomputers, uh, businesses started using Oracle's database on microcomputers instead of IBM's database, which was, you know, more well-known to run on mainframes. So I thought that, you know, we could ride the same trend that as companies started moving from buying, you know, racks and chases and machines and their uh, data centers to cloud, that we could build the database that they would use in the cloud and ride the same kind of technology trend that Oracle uh, rode in, like, you know, the early 1980s. So, so then in this case, um, for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of QO? Uh, it was pretty straightforward. So we um, uh, provided sort of data as a service, big data as a service in the cloud, which meant that, you know, you could upload your data, you could process it, you could mine it, uh, you could query it, you could hook it into your BI tools and so on, right? So very, very similar actually to Databricks and Snowflake today. Uh, our service was quite similar, uh, although there were also important differences. Um, our business model was straightforward. You know, we would charge people uh, for compute mostly. So as they would run workloads on us, whether it's a batch processing job or an interactive query, you know, we would sort of build them uh, for the compute. Um, we made money because we were able to build more than the compute cost us. So, you know, you have some, uh, you pay for the hardware to the cloud vendor, but, you know, you have a, uh, some extra leftover, you know, as, as a margin. Um, our model actually was like Oracle, you know, where we were charging only for the software part. So we were not reselling hardware. So it was a little bit different from Snowflake. Um, you, you, you had your own uh, hardware that you would buy from Amazon and you would sort of ask Kubol to run it for you. So we were like an orchestration layer on top of hardware that you were renting already from Amazon or Google or Azure. And, and we would sort of orchestrate it for you. So we would, you know, charge some amount of software subscription fees for doing that orchestration, which was linked to the amount of usage you had. Um, this was early days of land and expand. So we had a very beautiful land and expand model, although, you know, these terms were, I would say, invented somewhere much after the company started. Um, so we would you know, start off with the customer. They would have one use case. We would get some amount of initial revenues. But, you know, as their usage expanded, we would make, more and more money because, you know, the more they used us, the more they would pay us. So we ended up with some really large clients. Um, in fact, uh, some of the largest companies in the world, you know, at, at one point, most of the ride-sharing companies were with Cubo. So like Grab Taxi in, 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 in Southeast Asia, Lyft in the US, Ola Cabs in India, three of the world's largest ride-sharing companies were doing uh, almost all their data processing with Cubo. We had some of the world's largest travel companies like Expedia. And you guys, you, you guys also raised quite a bit of money. How much money did you guys raise for the company? Yeah, I think we ended up raising a total of about 100 million um, over the course of the entire journey. And what was the, um, what was the experience with dealing with VCs? You know, of course, the business would not have been possible without venture capital. So, you know, <laughs> you know we've raised a lot of money to scale the company and to, you know, make it big and have a large revenue stream and acquire these customers. So yeah, obviously enormously thankful to all of our supporters. We had some great venture capitalists. Uh, we had Lightspeed and Charles River, uh, who were our initial uh, investors. And then 
later on Norvest and uh, IVP joined us, and there were some smaller firms as well. Um, so first of all, you know, we had a, a really positive relationship um, with the venture capitalists. So you know, like a lot of people are afraid that um, hey, will will the VCs end up micromanaging us, or will they, you know, take over the company, or sort of end up running the company? These are very common concerns that a lot of young entrepreneurs have. Um, so thankfully, you know, we don't we don't have any of those problems, and we had a very uh, sort of the good form of backing, you know, where they would advise us and they would review our business, but also give us a lot of independence to run it the way uh, we wanted. There is also, of course, always the flip side. You know, the venture capitalists have a certain objective in terms of returns and, and the way their model works in terms of producing a few unicorn or decacorn sort of mega hits. And uh, so there is also some lack of alignment because as an entrepreneur, your goals are often a little bit different. Um, honestly, I did not understand these things, uh, uh, you know, as well as I understand them now. Um, overall, I would say it was a very positive experience. Uh, you know, even later on in the life cycle of the company, when we were uh, looking for strategic acquisitions and sort of, you know, trying to find a long-term home for the company because it was a little bit difficult for us to be independent, it, you know, it, it was really amazing amount of help we got from our venture capitalists. So I, I think was really enormously grateful for that. They actually spent a lot of time. You know, it was a lot of hard work for them as well. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. What was that process like of uh, exiting the company? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, something that uh, we thought about for a number of years. We kind of were open to it. Um, so we kept talking to different uh, companies in the Valley and in the tech ecosystem. So I would say that my overall takeaway, let me just not go into the details because I think it is not very interesting, but maybe the things I learned, uh, I would say, are that keep talking to companies in your ecosystem. You know, those, even your competitors, you know, um, your competitors, um, your partners, anybody, you know, who 
can potentially be somebody that one day might want to work with you, might want to acquire you, or you might want to acquire them if you are doing better than them and so on. So I think that networking is good because, you know, that's how the best exit opportunities come, right? Um, that's also how, you know, you can, uh, you know, a lot of... There's a lot of, you know, when, when the entrepreneurs start out, right, there's a lot of talk about, hey, you know, why are you building this company? And people say, oh, you know, are you building this to flip it? Right? But it's not easy to flip a company. You know? It's not, you have to find a good buyer, you know. And so um, when you think about building a company, you know, while, of course, everybody wants to be independent and large, successful, go all the way to the IPO, you know, that's the dream of every entrepreneur. Uh, but it's also useful to think that how you can fit into the world, you know, like if, if one day you could not sustain the company, you know, which company's portfolio might you be a good part of, right? And, and that is something that I think I did not, again, these are thinking things that I did not realize, um, when, when, you know, as a first-time entrepreneur, I had no clue. But now I think I understand these things a lot better. Uh, regarding the details, you know, it, it was a long, drawn-out process. We talked to a lot of companies. We got a lot of good offers. We had some stroke of bad luck also. There were some really, really good offers that sort of we passed on and, like, you know, which could not materialize for some reason and so on. Um, so usual ups and downs, but, you know, uh, we finally exited to a private equity company. So in the closing stages, you know, we had an M&A banker, so we could not sort of, we, we had to leverage some outside help. It was just not just our relationships, so, so they also helped us with the process, and, and the venture capitalists also helped us with the process quite a bit. So then after this, you took some time off, uh, and uh, you were mentoring, you were occasionally investing in some other startups. And then, you know, based on some of the conversations that you were having with people, because everything happens in the conversation, that's when your next baby eh, is born, Clearfeed. So what are you guys doing at Clearfeed? What's the uh, business model there? Yeah, thanks for, um, you know, raising that. I think, yes, certainly a, a, a baby this time. Uh, uh, now I'm a second-time dad. <laughs> or maybe a third or a fourth-time dad, I don't know. <laughs> I also have a couple of kids, so I, I actually, that, that comparison is very, very apt. You know, I, uh, you know, you'd behave very differently with your second kid than you do with your first one. As no, 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 with real kids. The problem with real kids is that there is no exit, and you only break even when they let you sleep at night. So it's a... It's, yeah, it's so a different kind. I, I, yeah, I, I do want to mention, you know, if there are young founders who are listening into this, for many entrepreneurs, there is actually no exit from your startup. You know, if you're if you're the one of the if you're the only founder, there's no exit. Even if there's a couple of founders, it's really hard to leave. Uh, you know, you can't leave. You know, it's your baby, right? Yeah, the whole whole company depends on you, so it's a, it's not easy to exit. The startup. Now, if you're if you're a larger founding team, you have the three, four, five members. That's a different thing. Uh, but anyway, um, so okay, so let's come to Clearfeed. So you know, let me tell you a little bit about where I started, what was my motivation, and then I'll tell you about what exactly we have ended up building. Um, so, like a lot of people who were who deal with large teams, have a lot of reports, a lot of things to manage. I was getting like bombarded at work with like tons and tons of messages, like whether it's email or Slack or Jira or you know what have you, right? Um, and it was really difficult to prioritize. You know, I noticed that I was not able to find out things that I was supposed to respond to. And I was hearing from other parts of the company complaints about my team. But hey, your team, your engineering team, they are not responsive. They don't respond to this. They don't respond to that. This doesn't get done. And I started thinking that this is one of the most important problems in a large company is how to prioritize and find the right things to respond to and make sure that, you know, you are doing a good job, right? 
The second thing I was passionate about um, was when you're at a size of a few hundred people, you, you can't figure out what's going on in your company. And so I was like, hey, I, how can I build a tool that can just give me a feed of the most important things that have happened in my company? Kind of like a Facebook kind of feed or a Twitter kind of feed, but you know, automatically generated, just sort of like, you know, just, just scans my company for activity and just sort of, you know, gives me a feed because you know, that would have been really useful for me as a, as, a, as a CTO of the company, as a co-founder of the company. Right. Um, so, look, these were my motivations, uh, as happens with most businesses. Uh, and, and I was by now, you know, as you can realize, wisened enough not to sort of just go about building, uh, you know, whatever I sort of like to build. Uh, so I started, I went around and talked to people. I talked to my friends. I got uh, introductions to other companies. So I said, you know, let me go and talk to mid-level managers and senior managers and a whole bunch of companies and see what how they respond to some of these problems that I have identified. You know, do they empathize with these problems? Do, do they care about this? And so on. So I did a lot of interviews. And uh, I started finding finding some patterns. You know, first of all, I found that this pet project problem of mine, which was like, hey, give me a feed of everything that happens in the company. Like, only the CXO guys wanted, were interested. Like, you know, the CTOs or the CEOs, they were interested. Because they were kind of like me, right? But, but the average mid-level manager, they, they were too busy with their work. They said, you know, I want some, I want a tool that can help me ship better, you know, do better at my work, right? And so I, I realized that that wasn't probably going to be a good commercial idea, although it was a great idea to sort of, you know, um, maybe I'll, I'll still build it, uh, you know, when I have enough time, but it wasn't a great commercial idea. What I really ended up hearing from people was this sentiment that helped me with my daily work. I'm getting swamped with Slack messages and so on, right? Um, so let me jump forward a little bit to what we have ended up building. Um, today, you know, we have a team of about 20 to 25 odd people. Uh, we have an application that sits on top, on top of Slack and other enterprise tools like Jira and Zendesk, Salesforce, and so on. The, one of the use cases we help with is we help people who are doing customer support on Slack. So there's a very specific set of people, companies and people, a lot like my previous company, Cubo, um, who help their customers on Slack. So they, they, the moment they sign up a customer, they open up a Slack Connect channel, and they, you know, start chatting and say, okay, look, you know, let's get on, get you on board. And if there's a problem, they would solve it on Slack. If if they have to, you know, do some some just check in and see, you know, hey, how's that project going? They would do it on Slack, and and that, that's how the the whole sort of the support has be, be, become redefined for these companies. Um, my my previous company, like I said, Qworld was a big practitioner of this, and I also ended up finding that a lot of companies like uh, like are doing exactly the same thing. So we, we ended up building a software that converts Slack into a, what you might call a virtual ticketing system where you can install our software and the customers just see Slack, like they're just chatting with you, but internally you see tickets and you see like structured issues, like, hey, the customer has a question or they reported an issue or, you know, they, they want to reset their billing period, right? Uh, and vice versa, you know, you know when, when you, you can reach out through our software it's not just a support software. You can also reach out through our software to hundreds of customers at a time and you know, track their responses. Right? So we're building this sort of customer support and engagement software on top of Slack that helps a lot of modern uh, B2B SaaS companies help their scale their customer support and engagement. Um, and then, then that, that's been going really well. So that's kind of one you know, key sort of use case for us. But broadly, you know, we are in the area of sort of building uh, you know, in, in, a, in alignment with some of the original vision of solving a broad problem, for building a software that can 
solve for use cases on these chatty forums, right? So we're also helping engineering teams. So there's a bunch of engineering teams that are using our software to track escalations. So they, these are larger companies with a few channels where people report lots of problems. And the engineering managers have a really tough time keeping track of all the issues that are being reported. And our software, again, you know, sits on top of these channels, keeps track of every issue that's reported. It doesn't feel like a ticketing system, but internally it keeps track of everything. And it allows managers to be responsive, to close everything. And now you've, we've also built very cool stuff like automated answers. So, you know, they can not only sort of uh, do manual responses, but they can also have a chatbot that sort of leverages their documentation to provide automated responses and so on. So we've got like, you know, these different use cases, but the core software is essentially an, uh, an application that sits on top of Slack and integrates with all of your enterprise tools and makes your daily life very, very easy to track all these conversations, to close them, to link them into JIRAs and features and so on and so on. Yeah. So then how are you guys thinking, you know, in a different, so obviously now, you know, you're thinking about building this in a very systematic manner. What do you mean with that? That's a great question. Um, so some of that, you know, went into sort of starting the company itself. Um, so like I said, you know, like doing a lot of user interviews before you write a single line of code was part of that. You know, that, that's part of what it means to be systematic. The second part of what it means to be systematic is to pick a large enough market, right? So obviously, as you can see, you know, we're, we're building software that I hope one day, you know, this is my hope. And as, as an entrepreneur, you always have these hopes um, that almost every company in the world, you know, some department in pretty much every company in the world would find a software like ours useful because it's great for keeping track of stuff on chat-based tools that people are using all day, right? So picking a large market is another important part. The third part is um, competition. You know, you, you want to build something that is both differentiated, um, but also you know, you can't walk into a minefield of competition. I mean, sometimes you can do that. You know, it depends on the amount of capital you've raised. So uh, I haven't raised like hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I've raised a few million dollars in seed funding. So, uh, you know, I'm also trying to do something that is unique and differentiated, you know, not something that, you know, maybe an Atlassian or like a Salesforce or a ServiceNow has already built out. Because, you know, if you're if you're building something that that, has a very very entrenched and dominant competitor, then you know it becomes very difficult. You know you can you can still build a viable business, um, but it's difficult to build a large successful business. Um, so I'm I'm also a little bit trying to build something unique and differentiated while attacking a large market. Um, other forms of systematic sort of approach are um, being careful with spending. You know. Um, uh, uh, you know, in order to get growth, you have to spend. So there's there's absolutely no question about that. And, you know, that's where the venture capital funds and money and guidance and, you know, investors, that's all plays into that. But you, you have to make sure that money is well spent. And so I think, you know, one of my learning lessons has been that use venture funds where the ROI is clear, you know, where, where you know that, you know, if I invested the money in the business, that I would get something out of it, you know, where, where, whether it's a product or the, whether it's customers and there, there's, you know, so, the, so I think at least I'm trying my best to be cognizant of, you know, how we are spending money and making sure that, you know, it's good bang for the buck. Um, time is one of the, you know, the best friends of an entrepreneur. Um, it, 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 the more time you have on the clock, the more repeat shots you can get at building something you can recover from mistakes. 
you know, you can take multiple shots, you can build different things. So money and time are sort of duels. You know, the faster you spend money, the less time you have um, and vice versa, right? So I think that's another aspect. Um, so these are all things, you know, that sort of, you know, I'm, I'm consciously thinking about. The other, other aspect about being systematic is people. You know, like as you know, right, in a startup of this size, people are everything. You know, you, the, the start, startup is essentially the value of the startup is mostly in the team that it has. So finding the right, right co-founders, finding the right employees, it's, it's tempting to scale a startup very quickly, but it is really difficult because it's beyond, you know, finding business, which also can be hard to find very quickly. It's also hard to scale up a startup quickly because it's very easy to end up with the wrong people. And so that is also another lesson that, you know, I saw very closely that th there is dramatic impact from hiring right versus wrong people. So, you know, so it's, 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 it's much more easier to build a company if you have you know, most of the people are the, the right people, the people who make an impact on your business. And, and that takes a little time. You know, it's not something you can just make happen. Of course, you know, if you, if you have a whole team and the whole team moves from startup A to startup B, you know, then you can just sort of have that happen instantaneously. Um, but in most cases, you know, people don't have that luxury. So it takes a little bit of time to, you know, build the right team and, and so on. So, first, so these are some of the things when I say systematically, you know, uh, these are some of the things I mean. And and what it also means is that sometimes it's a little bit slow. So, you know, you kind of take your time to think through the problems, what to build, who to target, where to spend the money, who to hire. And so it takes a little bit of time to lay the foundations of a company. But I personally feel a little bit more comfortable with this approach rather than sort of, you know, what's called the blitzkrieg approach or like going all guns blazing, you know, where you kind of spend a whole lot of money very quickly to sort of quickly ramp up. I just feel that you know this is this is a path I'm more comfortable with. So I guess uh, as you're let's say, you know, looking back here, you know, if I was to put you into a time machine, and I was able to bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where you were thinking about building your first company, and let's say you had the opportunity of giving your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? That's a tough one. You know, one piece of advice is really tough. <laughs> you know, but let me put it this way. You know, I, I would encourage people, first and foremost, you know, you have to have the right team. You have to have great co-founders or uh, founding team. I think, I think that's the heart of the company. And if you don't get that right, you know, and thankfully, you know, Ashish and I were great, uh, a great co-founder pair. You know, we, we worked together for nine years. There's something to be said about that. Um, so I think that was, that's, I would say, the most important thing. Um, second, you know, I have a cheat sheet at this point. So I've actually, um, before starting Cubol, I, I, I'm sorry, Clearfeed, you know, I, I created a small template for myself and started writing down everything. I said, okay, look, let me write all these things down. You know, who's going to make my competitor? You know, what, 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 why do I exist? You know, what, 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 why am I building this company? What technology trend am I riding on? Right? Who are my customers? Who are going to be my competitors? You know, what's my differentiation? What's my market size? How am I going to get to these customers, right? So I, I actually think that you know, there are, there's probably a number of these templates floating around. I had one for myself. I'm happy to share it. Um, I think writing things down, what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it, to the, to the extent that you, know, you can, is really useful. And I would strongly encourage people to do that. Now, there is a very famous saying that, you know, um, Plans are useless, but planning is useful. So it is also the case that, you know, whatever you write down, whatever you think through, 
it is quite likely that those things will not materialize that you know that you would end up doing something different because you know like you always have imp imperfect information when you start out but still that i think that thought process is very very useful for you and it sort of you, you know you can keep revisiting that as as time goes on um yeah i, I think i think that's what i would tell a younger version of me and i, I would give that younger version a cheat sheet if i could yeah and for the people that are listening, Joydi, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm Jay Sansarma on Twitter. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, Joydi Sansarma, you know, I'm, I'm at Clearfeed. You should be able to find me very easily. Um, either of those works well for me. Amazing. Well, Joydi, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.